is in the podcast in the book. We are delighted to have you join us. Immerse is produced by Charlie Morrow, Sean McCann, and Bart Plantinga for Morrow Sounds, Vermont, and Helsinki, and Recital Edition, Los Angeles. Canadian Claude Schreier is a Zen practitioner who believes in the power of art to shape a better future and dedicates much of his life to that pursuit. He's been a sound and media artist, having released several electroacoustic soundscape CDs in the 90s. For 20 years, he served as arts administrator with the Canada Council for the Arts in InterArts after creating that department. He is currently an environmental activist and in 2020 launched his bilingual radical listening conscient podcast, Balado Conscient, which explores art and the ecological crisis. He also offers workshops on art and sound and the ecological crisis. When I heard Schreier's conscient podcast with Hildegard Westerkamp, I was moved as much by the interviewer as by his inspiring guest. Thoughtful dialogue and warm atmosphere. I reached out to Claude Schreier to give this interview. He is enthusiastic and engaged. He welcomed the opportunity to discuss immersion and moderating a podcast. We each created a podcast, each with our own flavor, based on our dialogue, a two-sided interview. Nice to see you, Claude, and uh, glad that you set this beautiful, uh, you know, Squadcast up. This is my first, (laughs) my virgin run on Squadcast, and it looks terrific. Yeah, it works well. I wanted to discuss a little of what happens in your mind when you interview a lot of people for these kind of projects. It seems like we've both earned that spot now. We've done lots of communication prior to the current podcast series, but as longtime interviewers, um, I think certain kinds of things come through one's mind. I've found, for example, in exploring the notion of immersivity, which we'll touch on because uh, that's what my series is about, I found that I got to understand my subject a lot lot better through conversations with the folks who have been my uh, collaborators and even people I've done huge projects with taught me new things when we addressed it straight ahead. You have an agenda in your interviews as well. And uh, that was very interesting for me to see how you'd come up with your agenda and how it was manifest through the folks you were talking with. Well, let's start at the beginning. I, uh, I was trained as a composer, so I've always been working in the sound arts one way or another. And I worked with Murray Schaefer and Hildegard Westerkamp and others on the acoustic ecology movement in the 90s. And then I got a job. <laughs> uh, I worked at Canada Council for the Arts for 21 years, uh, running their interdisciplinary programs. And, and I kind of stopped doing production then. But about six years ago, I started a thing called Simple Soundscapes because I was feeling the urge to, to record again. So I wasn't doing interviews at first. I was doing either monologues or field recording uh, linked to my Zen practice because I'm a Zen practitioner. So I haven't really done the interview thing until about last year when I decided to do the Conscient podcast, which is in a way an extension of my Simple Soundscapes project. But it's all around uh, uh, an essay I wrote, which is on uh, the very first episode called Terrified, because my, at the time, 17-year-old daughter was uh, concerned 
about what field she would study to, at McGill or whatever university she went to. She ended up going to McGill. And uh, that was a real traumatic experience because she was concerned about climate change, of course, and wanted to know what she could do. And I decided to become much more active in the art and climate change movement. And because I was an audio artist, why not use that medium that I know well to record uh, conversations with people who I either know well and I know they have good things to say or people I don't know at all and I have to learn more about. So I became a kind of a podcaster, but not a journalist in the sense that my intention is not journalistic. It's more anecdotal, but it's knowledge-based. I need to know more. I share my knowledge. If it works, people like it, great. I do it in French and in English. And so it's about learning. I call it a shared learning journey because I didn't know enough about some of the technical aspects. And a good, as a good uh, example is echo grief. And today, actually, there's a, there's a, a panel in the U.S. Uh, that's talking about echo grief. And I've connected to those different communities, the, uh, the activist community, the ecological anxiety and ecological grief communities, um, the music and art community. And, and I'm trying to pull together uh, enough knowledge to uh, make a difference for those who are interested so, for instance, I mentioned I'm doing a workshop next week at uh, The Beast in Birmingham. Um, so that's an example of reaching out. But very few people are registering because, quite frankly, uh, people are, are, are scared of the topic. When you talk about climate change or even worse, the climate emergency, which it really is, there isn't a lot of engagement outside of the specialists or the truly curious. So I'm finding that's difficult not to f find uh, guests or people to talk to. I, I know who to talk to, but to get the people, the audience to listen to what people have to say, it's, it's like a vicious circle, right? Where you put the information out there and people aren't ready to receive it. And, and if it wasn't COVID, I would be on the road, you know, as, with as low carbon footprint as possible, talking to people, engaging them, and it would work w much better. But now we can talk to anybody at any time, uh, yourself, you're in Finland, I'm here, no problem. So it's a really great time to record conversations. And I just did one this morning with a woman in Spain who wrote a wonderful essay, a woman named Carmen Salas, who's brilliant. And so I, and tomorrow there's others and then there's young people and, and all kinds of voices that I'm curious about. And when I interview them, I tend not to edit because there's a flow and then I say oh, about 25 minutes we're going to talk and we'll get somewhere I'll put some links on my website and then the person listening uh, will uh, appreciate that it's authentic you know it was a conversation uh, prepared in the sense that taking it seriously but not orchestrated to the point of being like CBC everything's under control here Canadian Broadcasting Corporation that's fine that's great. they're great journalists but I'm in another beat. I'm an artist, cultural worker, activist, recently retired, so free from any burden of having to work full-time, who is dedicating himself totally out of passion and out of instinct on a series of conversations about something that's critically important to us all, and therefore we need to do what we can, and because I'm an audio artist, I decided to do this. So that's that's the short version of, of why I'm doing this. What about you? <laughs> well, start out with some similarities. First of all, um, my home is on the Canadian border of Vermont. Oh, yeah. uh, the nearest city to me is Montreal. <laughs> right, right. Nice. My, my father was a McGill graduate, uh, a francophone and um, mm. English speaker both. 
Uh, he graduated in uh, medicine and surgery. He was born in the mm -hmm. States, uh, but he went to Canada because he was poor and he could be on a sports scholarship as an athlete. You could play football on a football scholarship at McGill at that, in those, in the, back in the 30s, almost 90 years ago. <laughs> so um, you know, we're, we're both creatures of the North <laughs> to have a connection to Canada for sure. And uh, my, in, in Barton, Vermont, where I live, I have an archive. Uh, I've been a composer myself all my life and a sound artist and also a publisher. I published Ear Magazine and I had the New Wilderness Foundation, which published New Wilderness Audiographics, over 40 titles of experimental arts that were mainly interdisciplinary, uh, that had no place in the normal spectrum of publication in those days. It wasn't just that it was artistic, it was that it worked across the lines because I saw an affinity between um, First, First Nation artists and experimental artists in my own particular community who were basically conceptualists. So one thing led to, it, led to another. I earned my living as a producer and as a jingle writer. And also I was able to build a studio in order to support the label. And I, that was also a studio for my business. And I was able to do large international cooperative events. I did precursor to what people are doing now, you know, back in the 70s. So that was a also, also a fa uh, kind of interesting journey, to, so to speak, to the present. And um, my uh, interest in immersion is based on a specific commitment, as you you are thinking, as a in, in terms of relationship to ethics and spiritual orientation. I, I woke up while I was before I was born, <laughs> and I regret I did a regressive trip in my early twenties, and I was able to make contact with and always go back to that moment when I heard and felt and eventually while still in the womb. And that kind of experience pre-birth and then the birthing itself was seminal to everything I did. And in fact, having developed 3D immersive sound, it brought me back to that experience in the womb where, uh, where I was, so to speak, all ear. Couldn't see a thing little flashes of light but everything was uh, determined through the ears and in that way being totally immersed so when i finally did create immersive media in collaboration with people it was in fact in many ways over and over again recovering in the present world of objects what i'd experienced in pre-birth and that's what my book is about i didn't know that but then a lot of things i don't know <laughs> Well, you've got that somewhere in in your memory bank, okay, yeah. if you can get there. And uh, I found that it was uh, not a hard journey. It took, you know, a year or two. But by remembering milestones, feeling secure about what the perceptual spec was at a milestone, and then working back. So that's, that's how that journey took place. And that led to my eventually doing this large study of uh, my collaborators who collaborated on immersive projects. And that's mm -hmm. who these more than 40 folks are, they, they share that journey with me. And when you say immersive, you mean uh, when the artwork invites the listener or participant into some kind of um, interactive experience? Is that how you, you define it? Or how, how do you, what are well, the boundaries? I would say, uh, I would say in enveloping. Yeah. And, uh, and not all of it is interactive in the first stages of doing an immersive sound field. You can transmit the field, but it isn't necessarily affected interactively more than your, your local sound field now. You, you know, the atmosphere responds to your presence, but it's not like uh, the light, when you turn the switch on, the light will go on over your head. And so when, yeah. when we mean interactivity, in a gaming sense, gaming the world, 
some pieces were like that. Some of them were more like one-way transmission. I mean, the, well, in the early days, there were technologies. I, I did an interactive uh, audio piece in the 80s, and George Lewis, the trombonist, was there. And, and it was very advanced, but it was a Commodore 64, right? This, that's how old I am. <laughs> But it was yep. it was very exciting because they were the early okay. earliest earliest days of AI with music and and today of course the systems are much more uh, uh, sophisticated. I'm not sure the music's any better because back then we were trying so hard to make good music with poor tools. Now it's so easy to create whatever. But I've left it all behind. You know, I I found that technology took too much of my brain time. And when I started doing Zen practice and you know raising a family and all that, I, I couldn't keep up with the, the, the more sophisticated technologies. I use the simplest possible technologies now, you know, a stereo field recorder, uh, basic editing. And what I try to focus on, especially with the Simple Soundscape series, was a stagnant camera and uh, interesting sound, like a, a living sound. So it could be a stream, it could be a child crying, it could be whatever. And that stimulated me tremendously because it was so much about being in that moment. But it's, I wouldn't call it immersive because it's, it's more experiential. It's like, do you want to stare at the same thing as me for three minutes? You know? And a lot of people don't. Well, fine. You don't have to. I don't care. But I put it out there. And I have a history because the, where I worked at the Canada Council, so much money was put into what's called digital art or media art or interactive, all those systems. So I know about them. But it, I've lost my passion for it. A long time ago, when I, I moved to other art forms that didn't need to be immersive to be experiential, uh, because you can experience something simply through reading a poem. Now, if you feel the need to illustrate it or to bring it to life with in 3D, well, fine, that could be really exciting. And many of my friends do that. They do uh, these 48-channel sonic uh, installations. I was in Deberg last two years ago. The World Forum for Acoustic Ecology that we set up in 93 in Banff was doing its 25th anniversary. And uh, there was a whole bunch of installations. And, and you know, multi-microphone multi things are a big, it's a big thing now. You record in 16-channel and you disseminate in 32, you know. And I didn't notice the difference that much because I don't need that kind of experience. But it, it is nice to have so many channels all around you that you can play and move sounds around and tell stories in very sophisticated ways that we can't do in stereo. So I recognize that it's a, it's a rich uh, medium, but it's not one that I've been interested in uh, for all kinds of reasons, including time. Oh, I can understand. Uh, my own journey went from more or less storytelling with the immersive sound medium so that in a museum you could have... Uh, Suddenly, the, uh, if you had a locomotive, you could hear the voice of the locomotive engineer from the locomotive, and then you could hear uh, the train virtually move, although it was physically stationary. And so it was basically kinetic sound. I find now I've been more focused on creating sonic environments for hospitals and workplaces yeah. in, in order to help people focus, in order to help people heal, in order to have uh, control over mood. In other words, as mind assistance. Uh, create some sometimes it's as simple as being able to um, alter the blend of wanted and unwanted sound in a room just through you know the use the use okay. of either added sound or filtration well there you get into acoustic ecology because uh, Murray Schaefer's work in the 70s in Vancouver the world soundscape project was about noise pollution and designing uh, a healthier more balanced more whatever creative if you want a sonic environment 
and, and that can include today, of course, designing of, of what you're talking about. How do people interact with the sound devices around them? How can they be designed ergonomically? How can the content be uh, appropriate to somebody who's, say, healing? And then you get into the healing arts and therapy arts, which is fine. Uh, now I can say whatever I want, but back in the arts council days, you know, there was a, a distinction between what is recognized art and what is that other stuff, you know, like social development or therapy and, oh, that's fine, but we don't pay attention to that because we're, we're looking at the stuff that we might fund because it's art art. And that's fine. You know, there, there, there has to be a line drawn. But for me, it's all part of the same spectrum. It's if you are working to help somebody uh, have a, an aesthetic experience or at least a, a more pleasant experience through, uh, through sound, then great. Uh, and if you call yourself an artist, you might. You might get a grant. You might not. <laughs> but it's really about <laughs> intention and quality of an experience and who you, who, who, you know, like if you're going into a medical situation, you, you got to know what you're doing, right? You, you can't just go in there and do things for people that, that you have to have a real sense of purpose and skill and methodology, which I'm sure you have. And so I've always been very open. I'm, I remember the Ear magazine. It was similar to Music Works, right? Because I was involved in Music Works in Toronto. Music Works is a clone of Ear. It's a child of Ear. Right. They well, that makes sense. Self-consciously made the child of Ear. Yeah, I re- but I remember the old Ear magazines that were these paper, broad street, broad right. paper. And it was great. You know, it was talking about Philip Glass before he was Philip Glass and all that kind of early days uh, of, of the music world. And the music works came along and it still exists today, which is nice because uh, Gail Young and, and the people who, who kept it going did a good job and just hanging in there, you know. Through, yes, through they survived. Ups and downs. And now it's still relevant. It's not, it's not the only magazine, but it's one of the ones. So that's good. Yeah, I think the new editor is quite interesting. She's she herself seemed to be an instrument builder and uh, have a real hands-on experience with with sound music and publication. So you see, her energy is very vital. Yeah, and they've hired good people over the years, and and they've they've diversified also their content, which is something I I was a I was a critic of that. You know, same old, same old, mostly old white guys. You know, let's diversify the content, and uh, you know, occasional old white guy, but. You know, you got to really be relevant to a broad audience, and that means, uh, and they've done that. So, you know, good for them. Yeah, they certainly have. Well, I had done that with ear. I created themes, and so once you had themes, it would uh, logically uh, draw a much wider and more diverse community. So, is there anything else you wanted to talk about, or is I think that um, we've covered most of it. I was um, okay. uh, pleased to hear your comments, and um, I share your opinion about. You know the whole atmosphere, the, the the lines between the art forms being rather artificial and perhaps just economic. And, well, uh, their art school. I mean, at the council, I was in charge of the inter arts office. In fact, I was the founder of it, uh, and we looked at what we call new artistic practice. So pretty well anything that didn't fit in the regular categories, and that was a lot of fun over the years. There were many projects that were just weird enough to not fit into you know visual arts or media arts or whatever. A lot of social engaged arts, uh, some mm-hmm. of the site-specific environmental art that that wouldn't have been recognized as art except had it gone through this this special category. Now they've opened up their categories so much that you don't need these specialized boxes. You have a much more fluid uh, recognition of of art practice. So that things have evolved, but in the old days it was necessary to have categories. And and audio art was interesting because it was the tradition was audio art like. Um, 
the visual artists who work with audio, like Robert Racine and, and people like that, who Hank Bull in Canada, who were a visual artist who worked in the audio medium. They did radio and they did crazy performances in audio. And those were fun days because you, you, you really didn't have, you had performance artists doing audio and, and all these different practitioners working from a sound source of some kind. Some of it, yeah, like you say, immersive, but a lot of it uh, kind of dirty, dirty sound, like uh, raw sound. And uh, I got tired of the raw sound because after a while, your ears get like, eh. But you go to the electroacoustic guys, and guys mostly, but some, some women as well, and they're obsessed with clean, you know, super fancy, uh, synthesized, you know, state-of-the-art. Somewhere in between, you know, it really... Where, what is the artist trying to say, you know, and, and what tools do they need to, to say something reasonable? I think there's been some indulgence in technology of people who are using tools just for the sake of the tools. And now with the climate emergency and the issues for the planet, all artists have to look at what they're doing and how they do it, including, you know, use of electricity for a conversation like this. I think it's justified. You know, I'm using a little bit of hard uh, space, data space somewhere, but I'm trying to be like totally aware of every every the impact of everything I do because why not? You know, you you, you might be able to reduce it, and, and if everybody reduces, reduces, reduces carbon footprint, uh, unnecessary purchases, unnecessary indulgences, all that it will help with the effort. It it does. I think I mentioned to you here in Finland. Um when you apply for travel money uh, or you're doing a project that involves any travel, you have to identify the the euro value of your carbon mm. footprint for, for that. You, and you calculate it and you have to build that into your budget. The Finns are very conscious of that. And uh, of course, people are very aware of climate here. Mm. One, of, one of the amazing aspects of Finnish life is that the cleanness of life and the cleanness of water, the sauna tradition, there are more lake fish varieties in Finland lakes than in most places on earth. Mm. So you get a variety of lo- really local fish. It's a country the size of California or mm. France. And so therefore there's a many, many lakes. Yeah, so, so do we. And I, I know. And so this, there's a real a similarity between Canada and Finland in, in this valuing of, of clean water and clean, clean habits and just the feeling of how important it is. I mean, it, it is in some respects like Japan in that people always take shoes off to go in the house. Mm-hmm. Although in Japan, you would also wear different shoes in order to go from in the house into the into the bathroom, the toilet. Mm-hmm. But bathing is very important to Finns and to Japanese both. Mm-hmm. In the far north with the Sami people, you have the circumpolar traditions of what you'd call Schwitzwad or uh, mm-hmm. Russian baths or whatever. But that whole cleanliness thing is very important. As a result, people take care of the street. They take care of the garbage. There's um, nothing goes out that isn't segregated into various uh, recycling. And there's always a discussion about the relationship to climate. Well, good. That's a, a good start. And, and I know that artists are doing a lot of work about the climate emergency. My, my problem is that so much of it is baked in already that we have to start thinking about adaptation as much as anything else because the, there's things that we can't change now. It's unfortunate. but And that, that breaks my heart, you know, for my children and their children. But still, you have to do what you can immediately and within your control. And, you know, I, I don't know what my podcast will do, but... I'm getting some feedback now that some people are listening and enjoy enjoy listening. It's sort of slow listening experience, you know, the, the, uh, the use of silence in interviews and interviews and just not being in a mad rush, you know, like in radio. It's got to be exciting. Yeah, I can't have any silence. But in a slower conversation, 
where there's silence and there might be occasional sound, the person's mind can kind of just wrap their head around the words and, and have a, I think, a more interesting experience. So that's what I try to do, speak slowly and uh, bring in occasional sound, lots of silence. I mean, I, I, I'm really sad I never met John Cage. Did you meet him? Did you? Yes, him? I worked with him. I knew him. I met him uh, when I was an, uh, just after I got out of Columbia College. I, yeah. I graduated in 1961 from Columbia, and I met him that year. Oh, yeah. uh, Philip Corner and I had met at that point. He was a student there, and he he's a close friend of Cage. And he introduced me to Cage and to Allison Knowles and Dick Higgins. My place in Vermont is the former place of the uh, Allison and Dick's uh, publishing company up there. You know, something okay. else press. Well, that's fascinating. Uh, Cage died the year he was going to come to Banff. I think it was 91 or 92. So it's unfortunate that we never connected. But anyway, no, his, leg- his legacy it's, is there, right? <laughs> it certainly is. I wanted to show you something. Uh, I did an exhibit which was in New York and in London called yeah. The History of Sound on Earth from 200 years, 200,000 years ago, uh, 20, 20, you know, 200 million years ago to the present, the predictions for the future. And this is a map of what the climate change is like. Climate change is a big part of, um, of Earth. I showed this in New York and in London. And I did it in Europe in London and in furniture place in the you know, a steel case in New York because these businesses are totally concerned with climate change. I mean, once you understand how big these differences are, you understand that the Earth has had to adapt over and over again. It, we're just coming to another note. The fact that we maybe have uh, tweaked it or pushed it along I think is irrelevant. I think the Earth just keeps changing the way it keeps, you know, mm-hmm. circling the sun until it falls in. Mm-hmm. But you not think that the amount of carbon we put into the atmosphere and the amount of pollutants and transformation of, of natural spaces is is moving towards extinction of, of humanity? Not any more than the uh, great extinction. There's been several great extinctions historically, who, which were much more serious because they were catastrophic. This right. is relatively slow. But for example, the comet that extinguished the dinosaurs changed history because it wiped out giant reptiles and made room for, at the time, very small mammals to become dominant species. And and the same same with the uh, various you know uh, species within plants. You know, forests changed a lot after that. And I did an installation up in Joggins, on the St. Lawrence. There's a on the fossil hills, there are huge cliffs with lots of living creatures from the, the Carboniferous period. You know, to do that project, uh, which was a film with a sound, 3D sound environment, I did, I did a day in the life of the Carboniferous. And it's amazing what, what they know about that. I mean, there was constantly meteors falling. There were constant huge forest fires. The trees were giant like the sequoias, but there were therefore lots of stumps because they got burnt down. And the sky had different color to it, a different uh, degree of um, the chemistry of the sky was different. There were uh, these giant flies that were 12 feet long, four meter long um, dragonflies. I mean, you can see a fossil of it in a, in a number of museums. So it was a different place. And what the main the reason that was interesting to me was that was when life crawled up from living undersea throughout all history to living on land, in which case we developed the oral world of an airborne life. So sounds that could be transmitted in air were made by new organs, ears developed. Before that, it was tympanum membranes that were heard underwater and different kinds of, you know, motions created them, tail thrashing and all all of what would make an underwater vibration. I think that was a a really fascinating study to realize how, how different it was 
until we crawled out. And, then, and that, that was particularly poignant to me because I remembered being born, coming into the world of air, how different it was to smell. The doctor that had borne me had a heavy sweat scent to him, and I'd never s- smelled anything before, except the liquids <laughs> that were going through my olfactory membranes as they evolved. Well, you know, I, I regret not uh, setting this up as a conscient podcast interview because you're saying so many interesting things. <laughs> I probably could use some of it. I don't know how you'd feel about that. It's fine with me to use it any way you like. I'm finding the conversation very stimulating. We've been through so many of the same paths, you know, and uh, we feel so we're both doing the work we do totally out of out of conscience and interest and uh, are moved by the people who want to make life on Earth better and having noticed acoustic ecology i mean that's my um my work right now in my business my sound business i talk about sonic health i'll send you if you like a little a speech i gave with it with some architects and we talk about the new children's hospital with sound here in helsinki and uh, some of the ways that people are building cities differently one of the chief architect of helsinki was talking she was talking about that she's doing things in london now and had worked with the architects in Paris where they're trying to develop a way that neighborhoods are built around walking distances. And it's really fascinating to... Uh, I'll send this to you. I think you'll get a kick out of it. I think this is fun to uh, to make this into episode because I, I like serendipity, right? Because you sometimes you, 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 you converse with the joy of conversing and then you realize, oh, well, maybe it's worth sharing parts of it. So let me just uh, do it this way. This is a, a special uh, version of the Conscient Podcast. I'm, I'm with Charles Morrow, who I who contacted me to uh, to have a conversation about uh, immersion and uh, our shared journey as uh, people doing a lot of conversations with with artists, art artists in particular audio artists. So uh, I'm going to edit into <laughs> the program <laughs> our conversation, but I want to ask you the, the question that I've asked everybody, which is uh, I wrote I, I did a piece called Reality, and the, the idea of reality interests me in part because of the notion of denial. Uh, because we we spend a, a lot of our time in our society denying the truth of the fact that we're abusing nature and we've I think we're taking ourselves to the brink of extinction. Uh, one can argue that, but just start. How do you relate to the notion of reality uh, as a concept, both artistically and 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 sort of philosophically? For me, breath is my strongest reality. I was an asthmatic kid, and I became a trumpet player as a remediation to that. And I've had allergies all my life. And so I've been trying to fix everything by learning to breathe right. And my wife is similarly an allergic person. And she too has, although she became a string player, she's a translator, but she was an avid violist. We've all felt that reality is what we can hear and breathe and touch. And so our senses create the reality that we have and our minds then synthesize what it is that's coming in. But I guess we're both very aware of our sensory systems and what it means to connect with another person. I heard your interviews and I wanted to connect with you because I felt immediately like we were on, what in the old days you say, we're on, this, we're on the same wave. But truly I felt, well, gee was that, that kind of perception is what's guided my entire life. So reality for me was to try to find a balance around all the information I was receiving and trying to process it in terms of what it is that I was doing. So uh, I guess rea- reality is is that particular process for me. My earliest memories, which I went back to grab as I described this regression to the first sounds and the first experiences of living form were to hear 
sound outside of my mother mm-hmm. and hear her heartbeat. Uh, I also did a piece about this where you had the child heart and the mother heart together for Westdeutsche Rundfunk. So my first experience of being alive was all sensory and my mind was just simply um, there. But that there in that moment, as I go back to it with you now, and I, as I describe it each time, instantly transported back to that first perceptions. I was there in a way I've only felt in certain types of meditation and in certain types of music making. It's a sense of reality and a sense of being that is, I can only say, clear. It's like crystal clear. It's like having no fog on your on your eyeball. <laughs> right. And then how then does art practice enhance or enrich one's life? And then really my question, though, is I know art does that because I've been doing it all my life. But in facing the, the climate uh, emergency, and, and you've, you've given me some good leads on, on art practices and things that you've done, what do you see the role of art specifically in dealing with a challenge as complex as climate change and, and climate crisis? Well, I think that artists are, for the most part, in tune with what's going on in the world. Uh, we're all reporters. Mm. Somehow journalists who translate our message into our art. As art is, in, in my mind, a readout, a decide, digested or raw readout of what it is that we're experiencing. Our wish to be an artist is, in fact, in order to be able to spend our lives doing that process. So I'd say then, since climate change is a reality, I mean, for me, it meant finding out as much about it as possible. For example, my show that I did in New York and then again in London, I found out the what was the local city area doing about climate change in order to be able to present that information, let people know locally where they could get more information and follow it from a civic point of view. Because in New York, for example, it had to do with what would the city permit the foundations of new buildings do, to be? How, how would, where would the water level be? I mean, after all, Manhattan is uh, an island. And so I found that there were real processes, in fact, at work. And then there were hugely negligent areas. So that, for example, uh, drainage, which is one of the hugest problems for climate change that we as humans have created by paving over the earth. Mm-hmm. We've really screwed that up. I don't think that very many transformations of the earth were much more than convenience for, for human technology. Because uh, in Manhattan, when there's a really serious storm, I mean, even back 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it would have floods. Parts of the streets would be flooded and the drains wouldn't work. So you, getting rid of sewage, getting rid of of rainwater, just the very basics of living in a world of climate every day. The everydayness of it was was what struck me. As an artist, I, in the earliest point, I would be making uh, artworks that had a beginning, middle, and an end, or a uh, gathering of people in order to examine ideas in art concerning those things. In the meantime, I've learned to make art, uh, making sound installations that are never off that are constantly on. Because the ear, I felt it for at least certain experiences, the ear does not blink. So therefore, to create environments that are ever-changing, but that you can live in. Because basically, it's a way of modulating reality to bring us mm-hmm. back to the first point. Right. Well, while we're, while we're talking, <laughs> I've been poking away on the notion of hope because uh, there are a number of books that talk about hope and the lack thereof in the current situation. How do you sort of wrestle with the notion of hope and the hopefulness for our world? And when I say our world, I don't mean necessarily the survival of humanity because the planet will continue without us, we know. But uh, looking at the hopefulness that 
correcting some of our behaviors might give. Do you feel hopeful? I always feel hopeful. It hasn't been that I haven't been swatted in the face by life or swatted myself in the face. <laughs> <laughs> have to deal with the uh, usual problem that something happens and then you have to shake it off. I was born with a, I, I think what Cage off says, his mother told him that he was born with a sunny disposition and I certainly uh, have that sunny disposition. And uh, I think that hope in this sense is the ability to focus on what's at hand and to handle it as masterfully because at every moment you can make a huge change and it is the belief in your power in every every, every millisecond of life to make a change that makes it important because without without that you're not really recognizing the present i mean we don't live in the future we don't live in the past we live inextricably in the present and the present i think should be dealt with like a, a samurai or any other warrior in that sense being able to be clear and present and in balance and to take away anything that would cloud your mind about your reaction to others and your resonance with others. So I'm hopeful because I think the uh, equipment is, is already here in this human form. Well, it sounds like a, a Buddhist approach, whether you're practicing Buddhist, I don't know. But uh, to be in that moment, uh, I was talking to a Zen master just uh, a few days ago about uh, his view of hope. And he said, it's not, it's not a concept that I need. I need to be present. I need other things. But uh, so one can contest the very notion of imposing uh, hope, you know, because it depends how you how you live your life. And, and it comes back to reality and denial. And it comes back to, you know, the process and process of living and i find art helps my life because it just opens doors to perception you know like you said it's like we're like a big ear i don't know what you you may, might have said that but you, you you said that our senses inform the artist being in tune and then reporting out to the world i i like that you know because in a way we are antennae that report out and provide information and knowledge and one of the things i i, I thought you might ask about is different categories of of art practice in around the immersion right so I was going to say, and I'll say it now, that there are those who are looking at raising awareness. So look, the world's a bad place, or here's an issue. And, and there are those who are saying, here's what you can do about it. <laughs> that sort of action-oriented, <laughs> activist, uh, engaged art, that's great. And then there's a third category of es escapists. <laughs> Dreamers <laughs> we're, we're really oh, also very important, in part because we can't deal with issues all the time, right? And so somewhere between those who are raising awareness, those who are inciting us into action, and those who are helping us escape from it, <laughs> a bit of a trilogy there. I'm sure there's other categories, but I, I've been thinking about that because sometimes categories are useful in, in sort of general terms. D does that make sense to you, the sort of aware, the active, and the, the dreamers? I do believe that's a marvelous uh, taxonomy. It, it reminds me of a um, taxonomy from from Yiddish theater of the Shlemiel, the Shlemazel. <laughs> <laughs> And what is a shmiel and shlemazel? Uh, well, um, let's see. The um, shlemazel means that you're unlucky. Lo oh. masel from okay. the Hebrew, and okay. uh, and a shlemiel means that you got no no brains. <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, the brainless waiter. All right. Don't well, the soup on the uh, on the on, on the shlamazel who is unlucky, <laughs> unlucky patron. <laughs> 
Well, I'll remind my listeners that this is a, this began as a conversation uh, out of curiosity because we do we're in a similar place in our lives, uh, paying attention to what others are saying, um, and and here we are talking to each other about uh, a free flow of ideas. And, and the thing about conversation is that I, I saw you think like we can see each other through video here, and I, I really enjoy that because you can tell that the, an idea is forming in somebody's mind. You can almost feel it right in real time, and then the words come out, and you can see with the hesitancy of the word or the, the, the excitement of the word. It's so beautiful. The, the, the word, the spoken word, is such a beautiful gift we have uh, to speak to each other and to sense each other's moods and intentions. Uh, I think that's also what I enjoy in conversation is listening, of course, but also just experiencing that real-time interaction of ideas. It's like all these brain functions are happening s- simultaneously and then they connect a little bit little bit and then all of a sudden we go on a tangent and and the listener might or might not join for all of it but they'll get something out of it because they're also feeling somewhat involved they're listening to us and then their own mind is of course saying oh yeah, that went, i'm really interested in that and they, they, they stop listening and they're thinking about something anyway it's a lot of fun to to speak so anyway i think we'll stop there just so that we don't run out of tape <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> right. uh, is there anything else you, you, you wanted to say before I, I turn the off button here? Let's see. Uh, no, I just want to thank you very much for being open to having a freeform conversation. You've covered everything I wanted to hear concerning both conversation and, you know, art making and immersivity. So thank you very much. You're welcome. We'll talk again. And I hope we'll get to meet in person. Where, where do you live physically? In Ottawa. So uh, just a couple of hours uh, west of Montreal. I'm off in Montreal, but uh, yeah, the head office of the Canada Council was here in Ottawa, so that's that's where I live. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm in Barton, Vermont, uh, which, yeah. is, which is a uh, you know like 30 kilometers from the the border with the Canton Est, and um, yeah, that's five hours from here. So yeah, well, when when COVID allows us to travel again, I'd be happy to jump in my car and come visit you. Oh, you're certainly welcome. I have an archive, and I'd love to share it with you and uh, yeah. share, take a walk in the woods. I have a maple forest, and a, and a cage just walked in this forest. I have. I can tell oh, you yeah. stories about Cage and all <laughs> Pauline Oliveris and Dick Higgins and uh, Alison Knowles. I mean, it was a magical oh. place. It's uh, up there. So uh, yeah. I'm thinking oh, now to make it a study center. So maybe. Oh, good idea. We can figure out some way to. <laughs> make all that happen but yeah. thank you so much and uh, looking welcome. forward take care bye bye I'll send, I'll send you a copy of the recording uh, just, oh uh, thank you on. and I'll send you some of these things I've promised <laughs> okay cheers yeah, cheers bye 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 thank you this is Immerse the podcast and book we are delighted to have you join us Immerse is produced by Charlie Morrow Sean McCann and Bart Plantenga for Morrow Sound, Vermont and Helsinki, and Recital Edition, Los Angeles. Immerse. 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 And then an empty shell to fall back into the sea.